that we gather here as your people in this place together to put you back on the throne of our hearts, that whatever else is happening, what is most important is what you have done in Jesus, that your people can be right with you, and that we can experience your righteousness and your peace. So I pray, Lord, that that sentiment would flood our congregation, that we would be a a great place of uh, refuge and a place of love. Lord, help us to be ever mindful that you're a global God, that you're on the move, not just in Avon and in the western side of Cleveland, but actually in uh, the forest places of the globe. We thank you so much for the missionaries that we've partnered with in Central Asia. Lord, you know the turmoil in that part of the world, what has happened, the displacement of people. We pray particularly this morning for the two couples whose visas are up, Lord, that you would move them to just the right place. We know from Acts 17 that you sent the boundaries of peoples. We pray that you would set them among uh, the people that they are called to minister to. We know that you move people around so that uh, others might hear about you. So we do pray for them now at this very hour in their difficult circumstances and help us as a congregation to be prayerful and supportive. Lord, for the missionaries of sustainable medical missions, I pray that there are a couple of weeks here in the States are encouraging to their faith and that they uh, go back with a renewed sense of mission and that as they meet with the saints here in Ohio this week that uh, we in, in turn would be encouraged in our faith and, and thank you for the effort they're making to come to Providence Church and for our partnership there even into the villages of Africa. Lord, we think about our own region now. We thank you for these local elections on Tuesday that we take for granted a peaceful transfer of power to uh, be asked uh, whether or not taxes should go up locally. We, We take these things for granted in our political economy, but we thank you that how easily we could be in in a place in the earth where there's uh, real tensions in this area. So we thank you for um, our local leadership. And Lord, in that vein, we pray that we would be very good citizens of our communities. As our membership covenant says, help us to be honest in our dealings. May we be those who are kind, who are energetic and active citizens, to be a blessing to um, our local places. Yes, we're the community of God, but never isolated, but rather that we go out and we show what it's like to have you as king. And Lord, for our own congregation now, we do confess. Even as mature believers in you, many of us, we think back the last six days and we think, oh my goodness, I I really, uh, I missed the mark there. I didn't represent you well. So Lord, today is a time where we we come to you again. First John 1, 9 is not for non-believers, it's for believers that we can confess before you. Lord, in our weakness and our creatureliness, we failed you. And we thank you once again for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from unrighteousness and sets our feet back on the rock and gets our uh, pointed back towards you. So we thank you for the assurance of pardon when we come to you in sincerity, not in a formulaic way, but God to say, oh, we really are. We're a broken people, uh, but we can be renewed in Jesus and have great hope and that you're at work among us. Lord, I think about the needs in our congregation, some with... um, Well, quite frankly, difficult marriages. Um, Lord, I pray that you would do a supernatural work there that uh, both um, husband and wife would look unto the cross of Jesus, that there'd be a place of forgiveness and reconciliation. And Lord, for others who are experiencing maybe difficult time at work, difficult time with loved ones, that you would renew their strength, 
that you would supply them with the energy that you, uh, supply them with the energy that they need to complete the task before them and help them to walk daily. How many times we're asked to walk daily, what better view of the Christian life than a long, narrow path where we walk daily with you. And Lord, for others with personal ailments, I think today of our dear sister Marilyn Jacobic, who broke her arm last week and yet continued to serve just two days later in our church family. What a blessing, Lord. Thank you for Marilyn and her model. I pray that you would heal her quickly and that uh, we would be uh, a loving community towards her. And finally, Lord, we pray once again for the baptismal candidates and their families that they would uh, just uh, be, be cheerful and delight in you, and even as the enemy would come for them in these recent days after an act of such obedience, that you would protect them and grow their faith. So we put all these things to you through the only name that we come to you by, which is the Lord Jesus. Now may your word be our guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your supreme glory our only aim. For Christ's sake, amen. Now, if you would, I know you've already been up and down a few times today, but if you would stand to honor God's word, I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 11 and verse 1 through chapter 12 and verse 13, and then I'm going to flip over to chapter 12 and verse 29. So here we go, Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each one can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if you would, to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Thank you for honoring God's word. You may be seated. So a bit of what's happening contextually here, you remember uh, Exodus is the, the anglicized version, right, of the Greek word exit, um, that it's a very good word from what this drama is about. God's redeeming his people from the slavery of Egypt, uh, both the physical bondage of a tyrannical power, but also as uh, Exodus develops, it's going to be the liberation from even sin itself. So God, as he all is doing throughout his word and throughout history, is calling a people to himself, saying, I'm gonna set you in a direction, I'm gonna show you who I am, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and the non-believing world will be provoked to believe in me by our relationship. But as we know, we've been to the point in the narrative now where it's, you know, the tension is building, right? Say so this is the 10th of 10 plagues. We've had these very dramatic events, but how many times can God tell us, um, I've done this so dramatically so that you might know? So that all the saints throughout history, right? All the people who know the Exodus uh, narrative say, I've, I've put it on display so that you might know who I am. Now in the section that we read, say why this is so famous, is because you have one of the most uh, graphic portrayals, I think, of the, the just judgment of God. I mean, you want something to stick in your head about the, the, you know, the swift justice of God, the power of God, you might think of the 10th plague, the 10th uh, judgment on Egypt, that there is the just judgment of God. But in this same passage, we have the merciful salvation of God perhaps one of the greatest depictions of God's kindness and his grace and his mercy. And say, why it's so powerful? Because I, I think all of us deep down, you know, before we're Christians, say these things do appear to be in competition, right? That we long for real justice and uh, things to be right in the world, but we also long for real mercy and grace from someone who's uh, in that seat, so to speak. And so just two points this morning. First, uh, look at the just judgment of God, and then secondly, to the merciful salvation of God. So what's happening uh, in this narrative for God to, to do uh, this upon Egypt? Remember that the Egyptians have erected for themselves false gods. 
uh, a pantheon of really hundreds of thousands of gods, which uh, polytheistic nations uh, do, even you know, in the modern day, uh, the, the pantheon of gods who uh, you know, are no gods at all. And they bow down to these uh, graven images as opposed to their real maker. You know, Pharaoh himself would have been seen as their god. You know, you go around to all the museums. I'm sure you've been to the, you know, every good museum has a section on ancient Egypt and you talk to the Egyptologist and you're reading the little plaque. You say, oh, pharaohs were gods in ancient Egypt, weren't they? They were worshiping a man. Uh, The man pharaoh was their god that they've turned turned away from the true god, their maker, and uh, bowed down to themselves. And, And inevitably what happens, I think going all the way back before the plagues to chapter five and verse two, I think this statement embodies much of, of um, the thinking of man without God. So Moses announces, say, repent and come to the true God, to Pharaoh. And remember what Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So there's an awful lot in that little statement. Say, what Pharaoh's saying is, I, I don't think about God. I certainly am not going to obey him and lose my labor force. Uh, I don't really want to entertain the thought, no thanks, Moses. Um, Why would I trust in that God when I'm God in Egypt? Why would I, so to speak, uh, give up, uh, you know, my own position? And and you think about that, say that very much, say, oh, an ancient Pharaoh saying this, say this very much is the the mindset, the condition of the heart of, of all of us before we're Christians. Say, why would I show allegiance to a God? I'm my own God. Don't we all know that all of our political machinations these days are designed to maximize my pleasure and to maximize my own liberty? Uh, I'm my own God. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Why would I listen to another voice, especially my maker? No thanks, I'm gonna do my own thing. So you ask, is this posture, uh, worshiping uh, graven images, worshiping other people as gods, worshiping ourselves as gods, um, is this going to face the just judgment of God? And here, most obvious way I think possible, God's saying, well, there is a reckoning. There's a reckoning for denying me, and you see why. Verse seven, you say, verse seven hits the modern ear. We struggle with this. That this devastating plague on the firstborn is done that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Say, that riles a lot of us moderns up, doesn't it? that the Lord would make a distinction. Say, we don't like that. Actually, you know, can't we just all get, get along? I was listening to a man on the radio. I think he'd written a book and he'd be, he was Jewish and his wife was nominally Catholic. And he's saying, well, you know, it's not an issue for us. Uh, the religious differences, we just don't talk about it. And, you know, it's all very happy. And I think that's, a very, that's a very much how everybody thinks, that there, there, there are no distinctions. Come on, let's just all get along. Doesn't matter what you think. You can be your own God. You can worship idols. It doesn't matter. And then we have this, right, a bombshell. A bombshell in that playground. God executes his judgments. He's calling out a people for himself. He makes a distinction. And that is what it's all about, right? God's saying all of us have gone our own way. We've ruined God's creation and God has inaugurated a game plan of redemption. He says, come, follow me. Come into the family of God and live differently. I do, I want my people to live differently by the way they live, by the way they conduct themselves, by who they see uh, that I am. And as they're called out, that the other nations will come in, that the Lord executes judgment so that the people of God uh, might be distinct. Now, what about this? It's terrifying, isn't it? 
death of a, a firstborn. I remember, you know, reading Nicholas Walterstorff as a leading, you know, kind of Christian ethicist. He lost a son back in the early 80s in a mountain climbing accident. And uh, Walterstorff wrote this famous little book called Lament for a Son. And he says it's something all these years later. I, the loss of a child is just about the worst thing, the worst thing any of us could go through. And you say, what does this judgment what does this judgment tell us about the nature of God and why would God preserve it and how do we hear it today? So firstly, notice, look at verse five of chapter 11. That God's gonna execute his judgment on the firstborn of Pharaoh, on the firstborn of the slave girl, and on the firstborn even of the beasts. Say, so what does this mean? Say, so this means that God shows no favoritism in his judgment. There's no partiality uh, in the mind of God when it comes to the execution of his judgment. That it doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your position in society, the resources that you have. God even, uh, right, uh, if he wants, can strike our finances as he's doing with this. That God shows no partiality. And you think about this, say, go around in your world. Say, just think of the people, maybe you know well enough in the congregation to who this would impact. You say, not a household was left, uh, right? Not one Egyptian household was left intact. Say, yeah, that's definitely, I'm a firstborn son. I have a firstborn son. A lot of you uh, have firstborn, say every house would be impacted. You see, God shows no partiality. There's no favoritism. It doesn't matter what you bring. There's nothing I can bring to escape the just judgment of God. Now, secondly, about this, and this is where the modern preacher, the, the contemporary preacher, i.e. me, tread very delicately, because this is, this is so very hard for us, that something like this shows us the, the seriousness of human rebellion. You see, if there's one thing the modern preacher wishes that, you know, really you could get into the hearts of, of the people brought under the word of God, it is a real fear of God. See, these aren't little, you know, picadillos and oopses and mistakes and, you know, I, I, uh, there, there's nothing really serious going on here. What God's saying is no human rebellion, thinking of ourselves as God and neglecting our maker and worshiping other people, say these are serious infractions and all of us will be brought under the just judgment of God. That there is a maker, he will do what he will with his creation, we are his creatures, and by all means, when we read something like this, that the fear of the Lord should come into the hearts of the people, say, he's our maker. He knows everything happening in our lives. You know, the can't help but think in, in this, you know, the most famous sermon ever given on American soil, right? Jonathan Edwards, you remember the title? It'd be in the Norton Anthology of American Literature. What was the title of it? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So that makes us bristle, you know, I'm thinking about, well, what would be our version? Our version would be something like this. Um, enlightened cosmopolitans cuddled by a grandfatherly God. Say, oh, yes, we like that. That's very good. <laughs> but the fact that I might be a sinner and I might have rebelled against God and contributed to the ruin of his creation and that that is not to be taken lightly is something that our imaginations must recapture that there is a just judge, there is no partiality, and God executes this so we know who he is. How many times has he told us that? I'm multiplying these wonders so that you know. It's as if saying, you know, the people are so simple. 
you know, uh, I'm doing gnats and frogs and blood in the river. These graphics, because so, the people are, so, and I'm putting it all out there so that they might know who I am, that I am a just judge, that there is a reckoning. It's here for our example. Now, friends, I know, I know what you're thinking. Some of you here today for the baptisms, you're not a Christian. You have non-Christian friends as I do. And you read something like this, and, and I, I think you're thinking something like this. Say, well, I really like the part of Christianity, uh, the values that Jesus is for, uh, the language of turning the other cheek, of being kind to one another. Look at the great philanthropic uh, things that our church does. And, you know, we love each other on Sundays and, and say that part of the church I'm on board with. But look at this, it's genocide. I mean, how can I, how can I get on board with a God like this? So I'm just gonna say, can we try for one minute to, to, to build the bridge, so to speak, with with the modern secular mind, and here's what I think it is. Almost everyone now is longing for a reckoning. That they use the language, right, almost everywhere. You can't turn on the news, I can't read any of my publications, you know, something like you know, London Review of Books. I mean, these are, you know, it's very secular publication. You can't read anything without there being a great cry for justice. That it's not even, I would say, an intellectual position. It's deeper than that. It's a, it's a visceral reaction that we look out at the world. You say, oh my goodness, we're going the wrong direction. Say, is there, is there ever going to be a reckoning? Now, the, the, the issue is, is that the secular person thinks that the reckoning is going to come with cosmetic changes to human institutions. Let's change this in our educational curriculum. Uh, let's pass this law. Uh, let's do this with taxation, right? That these little adjustments in the West and everything's gonna be fine and that's how we arrive at justice, relying on other fallen people. That's how we're gonna arrive at the society. But the longing for justice is deep in there. And what strikes me then, you're in a dialogue with your friend, you say, well, we seem to have kicked out the one person who is in position to be the just judge the one person who's outside the system. I mean, do we really wanna think that any of our human institutions, think of a great human institution, would be responsible for executing real justice across the whole world anywhere? Say, no, we need some, someone outside the system who's perfectly just, that's what we're longing for. And you could ask your friend, you say uh, about, say, well, I don't believe that, you know, the, the genocides of the Bible, I can't believe in a God like that. You say something like this, do you think there should be justice for those who enslave other people? Oh yeah. Do you think there should be justice for those who treat others cruelly? Oh yeah. Uh, what about for prideful liars? Oh yeah, those dishonest in their obligations, uh, marital fidelity, you think there should be a reckoning for them? Oh yeah, I think there should be a great reckoning across the whole world, a, gr a great launch of equity for everyone. I long for a just judge, a universal just judge. You say, well, you just take one more step, don't you? Are you? Then if you long for a real reckoning, somebody who really doesn't show favoritism, are you then subject to that judgment? Now, if they're a logical person, what are they gonna say? Well, yeah, if it's universal, I, I should be subject to that judgment too. Well, how are you doing with things of pride and being a great family member and a great employee and all that? Say, is there gonna be a reckoning for you? You see, all we've done is say, taking this deep longing for real justice, to say that real justice doesn't come from other humans passing judgment, but rather someone like the figure of God who says, I show no favoritism. It doesn't matter if you're Pharaoh and you're deemed a God by your people, or you're the firstborn of a, a handmaiden, uh, you, you, you will be judged that there is a just judge. And I'm subject 
to that just judgment, what Calvin called the nooks and crannies of the heart, my lust, my pride, uh, the, the love that I have for myself, the fact that this week I was, quite frankly, more concerned about Odell Beckham than I was about anything that God's word had to say. Say, what, uh, what judgment must I face? Friends, there'll be a reckoning. There is one who sees into the heart. He shows no partiality. He doesn't care about our stuff. He doesn't care about our academic achievement. He doesn't care how good our kids have turned out. What he says is there's going to be a day of reckoning and everything that everyone longs for. There is someone who does that, and we're made in his image that there's a swift and just judgment from the only one in position to do that, the God of the Bible. Now, if you leave it there, say, thank goodness we don't leave it there. So that's very bleak that we all face that judgment. In this same passage, you notice what happens then, that there's a pivot that we see wonderfully the merciful salvation of God. If you think about it, say that we, we think of these two things in competition, the justice of God and the grace and mercy of God, say always in the God of the Bible that they meet. And, and, and the very fact that we're sitting under this word and God is announcing his justice, he's saying every person's gonna be judged. The fact that he's announced it, he's given us all these plagues, shows us, right, his grace. It is an act of grace to say, to announce himself as the just judge. And I, you know, you can think about this this week, but I, I was thinking hard about verse 38. We didn't read this, so now the people of Israel uh, are leaving the land after this 10th plague. And then you get this little line, a mixed multitude also went up with them. I don't know, but I would like to think that some of the Egyptians said, you know what, this God is real. Pharaoh's out of his mind. That guy's got a hard heart, but I see there, there's a real God and I wanna be with those people. You see, God in his justice is extending mercy and an invitation to come to him. I like that Alexander McLaren, a famous um, 19th century Scottish preacher, he called chapter 11 of Exodus a last merciful warning. So you think about the plagues. People think, oh, the plagues are judgments, very nasty, mean God. If you think about it through a different lens, you think, what a gracious and merciful God. I mean, if you, you're at my house for lunch and my six-year-old son is acting up and I gave him nine warnings, what would you think? You, you think, this guy's an inept parent. I mean, who, like, n please don't do that. Please, don't. I mean, nine times, you'd be like, come on, you know, nine, and that's a bit what God's doing, but even more dramatic. I'm putting this on display so that you might know, so that you might respond. You say, verse eight of chapter 11, also something to think about this week. Why is Moses hot with anger? He's hot with anger when he tells Pharaoh of this judgment. Do you think there's an angle of that where he's like, I can't believe I'm doing this again. <laughs> you know, here we go, 10th time. Uh, Pharaoh's not listening, his heart is hard. I think, God, are you, you know, am I that way? My heart is hard and I'm refusing the obvious things to you that you're so very kind and gracious, giving his people a chance to repent. So what does he do? What is the provision, the merciful provision that God gives for his people? So it might seem a bit odd. He says, take a lamb. Take a lamb for your house and slaughter the lamb and put the blood up on your door. And that way, when the angel of death comes for the Egyptians, that the blood on the door is going to save your house. And you think, well, God's omniscient. This seems kind of silly. I mean, what is God going through the streets of Cairo and, you know, thinking, oh, there, you know, I don't know if there, you know, there's the blood and there's not the blood. No, you say, notice this wonderful verse 13, right? God says the blood, Israel, will be a sign for you. 
The blood isn't a sign for God because he's confused about who are his. The blood is a sign for Israel. Why is it a sign for Israel? Because, and here's the key idea, the lamb is a sacrificial substitute. We see the blood of the lamb as a sacrifice in place. So think about this. You think about the firstborn man in your life. You think that they're going to die tonight. It'd just be terrible news for your house. No way to escape it. Until, right, you say, oh, there's a provision. There's a provision in the form of a, a slain lamb. There'd be great rejoicing. Say, oh, God has provided a way out that comes for us as a sign for us, a sacrificial substitute, the lamb, instead of our firstborn sons. Sacrificial substitutes are everywhere in the Bible, right? So think about Genesis 22, right? The binding of Isaac. You get a lamb for a man. Here, Exodus 12, 3, a lamb for a house. Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur, a lamb for a nation. John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus. You remember what he preaches? The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb for a man, a lamb for a house, a lamb for a nation, a lamb for the world. The Jesus right, is our lamb. To say God's just judgment, right, has come down on Jesus, that we can appropriate his blood, if you will, to say, yes, I am a condemned sinner who's rebelled against God, but God in his kindness has provided a sacrificial lamb, so as I appropriate the blood of the lamb, that I will be saved. And you say this language is everywhere in your New Testament. I know those of you who know your Bible say, you're, you know, you're, so take a look, First Peter, right? You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but here we go, something with far more purchasing power, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Say that little line, without blemish or spot. Say, where does it come from? It comes from Exodus 12:5 that Jesus is the lamb without blemish whose blood was spilled, right? Or Christ, how about Paul? You know, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There's a sacrificial substitute for those who come under him. You know, friends, I I have to draw this to a close. I want you to look back. There's a wonderful little line here. Uh, Talk about a memory 11 and verse 7. As there's great howling in Egypt... Every single Egyptian household has experienced this tragedy. Do you love 11.7? But in the homes of the faithful, not even the dogs will make a noise. You say the line there is given for the, the peace of God's people. Say if you're not covered in the lamb, that we face the just judgment of God that we've all incurred, that we've all turned our own way, that we all face that just judgment. But if we appropriate the sacrificial lamb, the death of Jesus to say, God, you know what I am. I'm actually a lot like Pharaoh. There's been a time in my life where I've said no, and I need you, Lord. I I repent and I turn to you. I confess I'm a sinner. I want the blood of Jesus, right, to be sprinkled as a New Testament, this uh, blood of Christ to sprinkle me as my sacrificial lamb so that I can rest under and behind the blood of the lamb crazy world out there. A lot of sadness, no doubt. There will be a reckoning that, quite frankly, every person right now longs for. The reckoning will come not from failing human institutions, but the reckoning will come from our maker. He's a just judge. 
There's nothing we can do to claw our way up to him, but in his justice, right, see how the justice and the mercy meet. They're not in competition, but God in his justice has provided a merciful way out for his people and giving us a sacrificial lamb so that we might be right with him. Okay, you're not a Christian today. You're not a Christian doing uh, your own thing. Can you see this wonderful promise that I know you long for justice, you see injustice everywhere. Can you see that it's God who will do it and that he's provided Jesus for you. And today's the day where you say yes to him. Say, I wanna live for Jesus. I wanna be in that people of God, the called out people of God, and to be set on my way. Now, for those of us who are Christians, I think a passage like this, one of our hazards is going to be something like pride. Well, I'm in and you're out, you know, something like, say, no, we, we should be all the more thankful to delight in God's grace. Say, oh yes, we know that we've fallen short, but God's provided a way and that we can delight in him. So may this be something that cheers and uh, edifies our congregation. Next week, we'll actually be looking at the same passage because it's so rich, but never forget, right, that there will be a just judgment, what we long for, but God in his mercy has provided a sacrificial lamb so that we can delight in him and by his grace, right, be at peace, be at peace behind the blood of the lamb as we sprinkle it right on our doorposts that is the doorposts of our lives, so to speak. So I'll invite Jim and the team back up as I pray. Lord, this Passover gives us a glimpse of your awesome, in the true sense of that word, your awesome justice. And Lord, if we as Christians have one-on-one conversations. I know we get into non-Christian, uh, discussions with non-Christians and say, I never believe in a genocidal God. And in that same conversation that we sense a, a longing for real justice in the world, help us to connect those dots to say, actually, there is a just judge. And if he is a just judge that so shows no favoritism, then all of us, all of us must be judged by him. That we take a real look at our own lives and to see just as quickly as God executes judgment that he provides the way out. That it's right here before us that we're without excuse because you brought us to Providence Church today to be reading Exodus 12. Say, well, I didn't know it. Well, now we know about it. Say, look at that as an act of mercy that you're a just judge, you give us Exodus 12 and that we have a sacrificial lamb. And Lord, again, just not to agree with the fact of it, but to really make it our own as those baptismal candidates did to say, yes, I'm I'm under Jesus. And Lord, then that we would experience the real peace. Then in a world where there's much sorrow and wailing and disappointment, that we would uh, be those in the home resting securely. Say, nice soft pillows resting behind the blood of Jesus as you would do your work in us. Have your will, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing one final song together, church family.